You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Hi, everyone, and welcome to In Perspective. I am Bob Branco, and this is episode 297, dated Friday, February 17th, the year 2023. With me today, as always... The, the man from Columbia, Missouri, Peter Alchel. Good afternoon on this 40-degree weather. And just imagine a month from now, approximately, it'll be time for the for the baseball season. Baseball season starts on March 30th. There you go. Pitch clock and all. <laughs> all right. So before we continue, let me do some thank yous and some acknowledgments. So I want to thank Raymond Gay our producer, for editing our program, making it a quality show, as always. I want to thank Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place Chatline for posting our shows on bulletin board number 15. I also want to thank Jacqueline Sylvia from JS Web Solutions. She archives our programs on my website, which is www.brancoevents.com. All you need to do to find those programs is go to that website, Click on In Perspective Podcasts, and you will see our archives from latest to earliest. Merci, Jackie. And I'm sure she'll say Darien. Finally, the media sources who air our program. I would like to thank them for airing our show when they do. Thank you so much for that. I want to say hi to a loyal listener, as I normally do each week. This week, I'm going to say hi to Joe McKeezy from Massachusetts. Welcome, Joe, thank you very much for listening, as you always do. We appreciate it. Peter and I made reference to the baseball season, which begins in about another six weeks or so, believe it or not. So with that said, we have a guest on today who's very, very familiar with baseball. As a matter of fact, so much so that he announced it for a long, long time in the minor leagues of of, uh, baseball here in in the United States here. And I'm talking about Don Wardlow. Many of you are familiar with Don also because he is on Sports Roundtable, which is our other podcast. Don, it's a pleasure having you back on In Perspective. Yeah, thank you, Bob. I was thinking about it. I've been on here a couple of times. It's always a pleasure. Yes, you have been on before, but I wanted to uh, welcome you back once again so that we can continue with that discussion and maybe you can add a few more things. So, Don, you announced minor league baseball. You are a blind baseball announcer. I know some people are going to say, well, how is that possible? Well, I can relate a little bit, Don, to what you did. I was a color man on cable access television when we used to record our Branco softball league games back in the day. I would fill in with some information that the announcer wasn't mentioning, and I would be the fill-in guy. Was that what you did pretty much, Don, when you did color for the minor leagues? My play-by-play partner, Jim Lucas, made it his mission in life to describe the things I couldn't see. You know, he, the, the process, um, took several years to actually develop, but by year three or year four, Jim really was in charge of everything I couldn't see. And I was in charge of things you didn't have to see in order to make them part of the broadcast. I was in charge of interviews and 
stats and the stories that you tell in between pitches, which, you know, you, you have <laughs> until, until this year, you, you have, you have some time always and sometimes you have a lot of time to tell a story in between pitches or if it is a fast worker, you make the story last two or three pitches and hope you don't get a one, two, three inning. But so I basically, tell- there was a lot of preparation involved. You had to get stats on all the players and, and other aspects of their baseball careers that you can refer to during you those weeks. That's what I did. There was a ton of prep. There were, and, and, you know, talking about those stories, would it be all right if I tell a Tim McCarver story? He passed away yesterday, former Red Sox, among other things, Hall of Famer. St. Louis Cardinal. Yeah. Can I do that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So Tim McCarver. This story is in his book called Oh Baby I Love It. I'm afraid that book is out of print, but I'm, I'm luckier than most. I have a recording of it made by my aunt and he tells a story about he's a rookie. He's 17 years old. It's September 1959. It's Cardinals against the Milwaukee Braves and up at the plate for the Braves, it comes Tim McCarver's idol, Henry Aaron. Well, Tim McCarver forgets himself, and he gets up in the dugout, and he starts cheering, Come on, Henry! Come on, Henry! Well, let me tell you, I can't repeat a lot of what was said to him at the time. I can say two things. Uh, one cardinal says, You're a baseball Benedict Arnold. And another one says... Around here, kid, we root for our guys, not their guys. That was Tim's, that was just the first of lots of terrific stories in that book, which I really wish was still in print, because now we do have Kindle, and Jaws can work with Kindle if the book's still around. You know, check it out if you have a chance. I'm surprised it went out of print if it was such a good book. It, it did. The, these things do happen, but it may, it may still be around. I'm not sure. Don, I'm curious, I'm, I'm curious about your relationship with, with, what was his first name? Lucas? Jim Lucas. Jim Michael. Lucas. Yeah, so how did you guys meet? And, oh, then how, we, and how did the relationship sort of develop over, over time? Well, now we met in college. We both went to Glassboro State in New Jersey, which is now Rowan University. And he was a couple of years older than me and he had, he did some sports broadcasts and he had a disc jockey show also. And I, there were a whole list of, I'll say 17 names for people who wanted to be sports broadcasters at WGLS, the radio station where I ultimately made my name. And Jim's name was on it and my name was on it. Now, I worked my way up and down that list, and every person on that list, one by one, said no. They didn't want to work with a blind guy. But I hadn't been able to locate Jim Lucas. Even when he had a disc jockey show, I'd call up when he was supposed to be on the air, and he was doing the DJ show, but he wouldn't answer the phone. And he didn't return phone messages, which I later came to realize he was notorious for not returning phone messages. And he still doesn't return texts when I text him about something. But uh, we never would have met except 
I had a scoreboard show every Tuesday night at eight o'clock and I'd go in there an hour early and I would, um, dial sports phone. Some of you may remember that service and I would dial that. And we also had a way to tap into ABC sports for the five minute sports roundups that they had. And if all that else failed, I would get somebody from the studio to get me the latest schedules for sports for that night out of whatever papers might be around. And I always had a boxing feature if I could find a way to work it in. I would watch the fights every weekend if there were any on. And if there were not any fights on a given weekend, I would ask my dad to tell me when the next fights would be on, and I would try to mention them on my sports scoreboard show. So I tried to work a lot into my five minutes that I had. So, Don, when you were recruiting, you said you had 17 candidates, but you really wanted to find Jim Lucas. Now, at the time, what was your goal as a blind announcer? Did you have something in mind for Mr. Lucas and maybe uh, whoever else from the other 17? Yes, my uh, my goal was clear-cut. I wanted to be the color commentator. I wanted someone to do my play-by-play. Was the team already picked out at the time? It was the Glassboro team of anything, Glassboro basketball, Glassboro baseball. In college, you didn't specialize then or now. You you broadcast whatever sport was going on. And um, this was November, and I was ready to work basketball with someone if I could interest them in doing it. And so far, I'd failed. But I came out of the studio after my sports show on November 15th, And I hear the following four words that changed my life. And those four words were, hey, Don, nice job. And I knew Jim Lucas's voice. I'd heard his DJ show. I had tape recorded a baseball game he did and a basketball game he did from the season before. You know, when I didn't have my broadcasting license and I couldn't get on, but I sure knew his voice well enough and I said you're Jim Lucas well he probably stepped back a pace or two and and he said yeah I am and I said Jim are you you up for a challenge if you are I'd like you to come back to the dorm and I'd like to tell you what the challenge is and he thought about that for a minute or two and he said yeah we went back we went to the dorm And he says to me, you know, I used to live in this dorm. And we turned down the hallway where I lived my entire college career. And he said, you know, this wing is the wing I lived in when I lived in this dorm. And we got to room 122 where I spent my whole career. Went in there and he says, this was my room. There's my initials on the wall. And I knew two things. A, something special was happening here. And B, I knew where the pizza boxes and beer cans had come from. <laughs> so we, 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 we laid it down, you know, that, that, that night we talked about could a blind person do first of all basketball and then later baseball? Cause he was like me and still is a baseball lifer, but he was realistic enough to know that 
if we were going to do it, we had to start with basketball because that's what was going on now. And we, we wanted to prove that it could be done. And the person who was sports director at that time and the station's advisor, the academic advisor, neither one of them wanted a blind person on their radio station. And Jim said to, to these two gentlemen, he said, let us make a tape recording of the next home game. And then at the same time, let's give you a copy of the broadcast you're putting out on the air. And if we are not equally good, then we'll go away and you won't hear from us again for another year. Well, those two guys gave us a chance. They said, you do that and make the two recordings and bring them to us and let us decide whether this blind guy can do the job. So <laughs> I'm being asked to do a game I had never done, obviously. And I realized the night before, I don't have any clue how to score a basketball game. I mean, yeah, I can score a baseball game. I know a 6-4-3, and I know an F7 for a fly to left and an F9 for a fly to right. But I don't have clue one about scoring basketball. Well, luckily enough, this was there was a late-night game from the West Coast. North Carolina was playing somebody, and the great Woody Durham was the announcer I listened to. And I followed his broadcast as well as I could from WBT out of Charlotte. And I, as play-by-play went on, I scored the baskets and tried to come up with a workable format for scoring in Braille. And maybe maybe workable is, is pushing it, but it was adequate because when we did our first broadcast the next afternoon into a tape recorder and we handed in the two tapes, ours and the one that went out on the air, the two gentlemen that counted said, the blind guy's good enough. And I had my license by then, and 10 days after our initial game, which had been on December 3rd, 10 days later, Jim and I did a game on the air, a basketball game, and it was the the, the start for us in the next season we did baseball both on the radio and we did practice games and I got in some difficulty over my practice games because initially I was using the WGLS call sign for the radio station that I worked for but Al Miller the guy in charge of the radio station said to me if you're doing a practice game don't use our WGLS you're ruining our good name well, and so I said, what do you, so what do you want me to do? He said, well, make up a call sign of your own. Well, I had to think about that and it took a couple of weeks before it just hit me because Jim had said right at the very beginning, he said, these tapes we're making are going to end up in somebody's basement. And one night in February of 84, I'm doing a high school game. And it just hit me, and I just randomly said, and this is coming to you on the Basement Network. And every practice game I did from then on, anything I did that did not go out on the air went out on the Basement Network. So when you graduated, so you, so you, uh, you and uh, 
uh, Jim had, you know, were successful in college, presumably you, what you did your basketball, you did your baseball. Uh, I presume you both graduated. Uh, wrong, wrong. I wish, I wish we had. I did. Oh, but okay. Jim, he bailed out in January of 85 and I was heartbroken. And I'm like, you know, there goes my career before it ever got started. What I didn't realize was that because people had heard what Jim and I had done and people had heard about it, suddenly there were announcers who were willing to work with me who had not been willing to work with me before. And there was a new crop of announcers who were willing to work with me so they could get experience. And so I would take some freshman and put him on the basement network since he couldn't get on GLS yet. We could do these practice games. I'd give him the tapes and I'd keep, you know, a copy for me. And the basement network, you know, trained guys who would go on GLS and, um, and it, it, it was a real, real, you know, helpful thing. I thought Jim dropping out would, would ruin things for me, but, it didn't, and I had the basement network, and I kept that going even after I graduated. I would go to games at Columbia, and I had one game at Fordham, and I would talk to the radio station, the sports director, and I'd say to him what I was doing. I was trying to learn to become a broadcaster. I'd graduated college, and would they lend me an announcer who wasn't getting much airtime? And let me record a game with him on the basement network and it would be demo material for whoever they, they would loan me. And Columbia did that. Fordham, I only got one game in there, but St. Francis College in Brooklyn, I was able to do a couple games over there. And Jim returned in 1989 after four years. I thought I'd never hear from him again. And we did a game at Yankee Stadium in July of 89. And then spring of 90, he said to me, Don, are you up for a challenge? He said, you asked me that six years ago. Now I'm asking you, do you want to go pro? And I'm like, no, what do you mean? How how would we do it? He had a Baseball America book, which had in it all the addresses of all the baseball teams, major and minor, you know, from the New York Yankees to the Butte Copper Kings or the Pocatello Raptors of the Pioneer League. You know, they had every address. And he said, you know, I'll write the letters. You make 176 demo tapes, you know, based on our broadcast that we had done from Yankee Stadium the fall of the past July. So I made the tapes and he did the letters and we got down to it with, you know, some pizza and some beers. And I never signed my name so many times in one night in my life. It was my one and only case of writer's cramp. And we sent those letters out and we waited. Including the tapes? Oh, yeah. The tapes were in the letters. And we sent them out and we waited and we waited and we got... As I recollect, about 30 form letters, you know, thanks for your interest, not interested. Um, 13 handwritten letters, thanks for your interest, not interested. But on the 20th of April, 
we had done an amateur boxing show on the basement network, Jim and I had. And he had dropped me off where I was living then. And he was headed to South Jersey. And he knew I'd be revved up from the broadcast. So he didn't mind calling me at 2.30 in the morning to tell me there was a letter from Mike Veck, who was the son of Bill Veck. And Bill Veck was maybe the original baseball maverick and, and baseball promoter, the man of the midget at home plate and the, the king of disco demolition. Well, Mike Veck was and is Bill Veck's son. And Mike said to us that we've got our 1990 broadcasters for the miracle, his team in Pompano Beach, Florida. But he said, would you come down and do a one night special appearance? He wouldn't call it an audition because he didn't want to upset his present day broadcasters. So we jumped on that. You can just imagine. You know, we sent him back a letter. We'll come down there, name name the date. We're there. We went down there the weekend of June 29th, 30th, and July 1st. The 29th and 30th, we did practice games. You know, this is Florida State League ball. The season was well underway. And we wanted to know everything we could about the teams involved. Our team, the Miracle and our opponent, the West Palm Beach Expos. So we covered a West Palm Beach game on the 29th and a miracle game against West Palm on the 30th on the basement network. And then the the July 1st was our one-nighter on WSBR out of Boca Raton, Florida, the station that carried the miracle broadcast. And that was an incredible night for us, even though the team lost seven to one. Still, it was our night doing real professional baseball on the air. And Mike got all the publicity he could have wanted. There were newspaper stories, TV pieces about us. So he got his and we got ours. And then what happened next? So you, you, you got your one, uh, you know, shot to broadcast the real game. Yes, Mike said, we'll- well, I, I can't <clears throat> make a promise. He said, but you take yourselves to the Los Angeles area for the winter meetings in December of 1990. You know, get to L.A. and we'll see what happens. And bring all your tapes and bring all your letters and this and that. And we went to, out to L.A. It's my one and only trip to L.A., and the smog was working overtime, and I have asthma, so me and smog don't have a good relationship. And we didn't have hotel money, and so we stayed with Jim's mom and Jim's grandpa. And Jim's grandpa had the distressing habit of smoking cigars. But if you're staying under their roof... You have to abide by their rules. So you couldn't tell grandpa to take his cigar and put it out. You couldn't or else you wouldn't be staying under their roof anymore. So we had to deal. Well, I had to deal with the cigar. Jim, that didn't bother him as much as it did me. But we went to the hotel, the Weston Bonaventure, I do believe it was. And here's hundreds and hundreds of guys and girls dressed to the nines, 
and we're dressed in the best suits we had, which couldn't have been much, although Jim's probably, you know, was a little, you know, more, more professional than my own, but I only had one, so I, I wore it, but Jim, seeing all those people was probably more intimidated than I was, although he's never said much to me about it. And these people wanted to be everything from general managers to assistant groundkeepers, tarp pullers. And in that category was broadcasters who are paid on a scale with tarp pullers, I might add. And in, in many cities, if you're able-bodied, like Jim Lucas was, they cross the broadcasting and tarp pulling. So Jim, Jim did some of that before our career was done. But, uh, we, we initially, I think there was only one offer on the table and it wasn't the miracle. Mike didn't want to make it public. He said, if either I'll hire you or I'll have to go silent because I can't find a radio station. So the the one that was officially out there was the Boise Hawks of the of the Northwest League, a team that I'm not sure still exists because of the ridiculous contraction of baseball these days. But Ken Wilson of the Boise Hawks gave us a very fine interview. He was very kind to us, and he said, "Well, you know, you leave me your tape and you let me let me." See what I could do and I'll call you, you know, yes or no. And we don't know whether he's just blowing smoke or whether he means it, whether he really will call us. So we're, we come in there on Saturday. So Sunday goes by. The highlight of Sunday is listening to the Dr. Demento show, which I used to love that program. And it was on his flagship station out in Los Angeles. And that was great. And Monday was the interview with Ken Wilson. Tuesday, I think, was the last day of action. And we're thinking, well, we have our one interview, and Mike is still there. He's been in the shadows this whole time. He's He's been physically in Los Angeles with us, you know, hanging around every now and then. He'd come over and say, have you seen anybody? And we told him about Ken Wilson. And this fellow comes up to us from nowhere at all. And I forget his name, but he represented the Pocatello entry in the Pioneer League for 1991. And if you can imagine the guy who used to do the Motel 6 ads, I forget his name. Tom somebody. Tom, Tom Bodette, I think. Okay, there you go. Thank you. Yeah. And you get, you imagine his, his voice and imagine a Don King sales pitch. So if you've ever heard Don King sales pitch, he's, he's just goofy. He just says anything, any crazy thing that comes out of his mouth and, and he expects you to believe it. So this guy who's, as I say, I've forgotten his name, but he, he, he gives us this pitch, and I, I, we got way out of range and were away from him. And I said, Jim, I don't particularly trust that man. There's something about him. He's a cross between Tom Bodette and Don King, and, I, and it doesn't give me a good vibe. And Jim says, well, you're blind, 
let's tell Mike Vick about it and see what he says. He's more attuned to this than you are. So let's see what Mike says. So we tell Mike Vick about this gentleman, and Mike says, do not get anywhere near the Pocatello offer. That's it just he's never going to give you any money, and he's not going to give you any, you know, hope for any future in this game. You know, Ken Wilson's a better bet than that guy is. So Mike made it perfectly clear about Pocatello. So we we left there. We left we left the winter meetings, and Mike said, "Well, I'm going to have to get in touch with you. I don't have a radio station yet." And unless I get one, you're not going to be able to come down to Pompano. So we, we get to where we're staying, to Jim's mother's house. And the phone rings, and it's Ken Wilson. And he's the Boise guy, the guy we 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 liked him. And he says, what? I'm saying hi to the new voices of the Boise Hawks. Leave meeting button. So... The Boise Hawks were the Angels affiliate at that time and were for a lot of years. So we're like, holy cow, we are the voices of the Boise Hawks. And so we tell that to Mike. And Mike says, well, I'll tell you if something happens. But if if nothing happens, you go to Boise and get yourself a year of experience under your belt, and maybe I'll do something in '92 with the miracle. Mike had no no intention of you know letting go of the miracle. He was he was gonna pull that team up from nothing, and he, believe me, he started with nothing. So Don, just to move forward a little bit further because we're about halfway through the program, almost time for our community to step in. What was the end result, and how did your career begin, and what did you do? Well, we. We were in end of Feb, uh, end of January, and Mike Vec called up and said, "Guys, well, I got a radio station. It's not a whole 140 game season, but it's in Pompano. You know, stations in Boca. It's SBR, the station you were on last year." And we said, "We're yours, Mike." And Jim and I said, "Well, to each other, well, one of us is going to have to call Ken Wilson." And Jim says, I can't do that. And I said, I can. I have no compunctions about calling Ken Wilson. And I called him in Boise and I said, you know, but Ken, I've got some hard news. I can't in good faith take your offer with Boise. Mike has offered us 140 games and I just can't say no. And he got all bent out of shape. And he's like, you're using me to get more money out of Mike, which is Ball. So, Mike so tell us. So tell us what your first game on the radio was like. Ah, uh, man, I, 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 it's it's recorded, which is a good thing, because it was a blur. It was a, as it was happening. Um, we had a guest in the opening innings, which is difficult under any conditions. Um, the 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 second guy in the order hit a home run. Against our pitcher, our starting pitcher, before we even had a real chance to introduce ourselves to to the audience, so our team was behind from that second batter of the game, and they were behind the whole rest of the season. How come you didn't have time to introduce yourselves? We had to get on very quickly. I forget what the first batter did, but 
but this, the second batter hit that home run on the first or second pitch, and we had barely gotten on. I had had this long billboard I had to read of commercial uh sponsors, and so I basically turned it over to Jim, and he says, thank you, Don. Uh, we've got one man on base, and, and Brian Johnson's up, and bang, the next pitch goes out of the ballpark. And that's the one thing I really remember about that game. It it was wildly exciting. You know, the whole the whole first season we were like you know, take taking taking weekends and and broadcasting on the weekends. It wasn't a every night thing. We would do games on the basement network during the week which couldn't go out on the radio. But so how many years did you work for this outfit? We were two years with the Miracle, uh, one in Pompano, and in 92 we moved to Fort Myers, and Mike got us a full 140 games. And then we got promoted to AA New Britain for four years in the Eastern League, New Britain, Connecticut. And then we were three years in St. Paul in the Northern League, Independent Ball. And the last three were in Charleston, South Carolina. New Britain Red Sox? Yes, we were. In 93 and 94 was the New Britain Red Sox. And then the Red Sox bailed out because um, their, the New Britain owner, Joe Buzis, uh, built a new stadium, which isn't what the Red Sox wanted. They wanted us to move to Springfield, Massachusetts, and Joe Buzis refused to do that. So when he did refuse, then Boston pulled out on the New Britain Red Sox, and we became the New Britain Rock Cats, the Twins Double A for '95 and '6, and they remained the Twins Double A until the team pulled out of New Britain and moved to Hartford, and the Twins didn't want to be involved with Hartford. So we have about 25 minutes to go, or a little bit less. I do want to get the participants involved with this discussion. You're listening to In Perspective, and our guest is Don Wardlow. He was a blind color man for minor league baseball. So without further ado, let me ask Ray if there are any hands raised. Uh, Let's see. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, we hear you fine. Phone number ending in 814. You are up first. 814. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much, Don. Great to hear you. Do I recall correctly that you did at least one evening in spring training uh, under the offices or, or with Harry Carey? Unfortunately, no. In fact, I was supposed to meet him in Miami we did a one game cup of coffee with the Florida Marlins as they were called then and it was going to be Marlins against Cubs but it was in 94 that was when Carey broke his ankle and so I never did get to meet him oh but did, did you get to do the game though oh yes we got our cup of coffee in the Cubs destroyed the Marlins that ball game mm-hmm. Well, congratulations on, on, on a wonderful career. Well, thank you very much. What is your name, sir? Uh, Steve, Mendel- Steve Mendelson. Okay, oh, Steve. Mendelson, yeah. Yes. Okay. All right, Steve, any other question? Uh, what, uh, what are you doing now? Well, among other things, I was just going to say, I've got a podcast, and it's called The Baseball Lifer, 
and it's free. You can subscribe to it where all good podcasts come from. I'm going to talk about the podcast, Don. What, 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 how does it work? How often do you record? What do you do? You know, that kind of stuff. I began it in October. Um, I record a show every week. I release it every Friday. Um, I've, I record interviews with guests whenever they become available. And if I can, I release the podcast the next Friday after I've done an interview with someone. If that's not possible, I keep the interviews in the can until I can get to a point where I can release one. And it's called the baseball lifer because a person who devotes his life to baseball is called a baseball lifer. Tim McCarver was one, the longtime broadcaster who passed away yesterday. He was a baseball lifer. And although I only broadcast for 12 years, I've been a fan since I was eight years old. And when I left the game, I continued being a fan. So I I consider I've given my life to the game also. So it makes me a baseball lifer. And I try to do interviews with other such persons. I um, did one with Tim Haggerty, who's been on Sports Roundtable. I remember. Uh, Done a, a couple with friends of mine who I'm familiar with from Facebook. And they have a lot to say about baseball. And I found an old broadcasting colleague who broadcast in the Florida State League when I was there. And his show hasn't been aired yet. He'll, I think he's the guest next Friday. And today's show, which is brand new, is an interview with James Bailey, who used to work for Baseball America and now wrote a book called Major League Debuts 2023 Edition. And it's about the 303 men who made their major league debuts last year. That many? 303, and that broke all existing records. I mean, you could staff 12 major league teams, 25-man rosters, with men who made their debuts last year. I'm sure that a lot of it had to do with injury, because baseball is trending in that direction, unfortunately. Yes, it did. Injuries and of COVID course. And, and trips up to Canada where the COVID rules last year were still very stringent. I don't know what they're going to do about it this year, but that caused there was a, there was a weekend when Kansas City was uh, going up to Toronto. They had 10 guys make their major league debut that weekend because they didn't have guys who were vaccinated who could safely cross into Canada. So he well, was James Bailey, the author of that book, was my guest on today's episode. We recorded on Tuesday, and we we do our meets on Zoom, and then I do the editing and what what I think the Hollywood people call post production, and I fumble finger my way through that. And when I can get the show released, like today, it was around two thirty or three o'clock. I put it out there. That's called the Baseball Lifer. Baseball Lifer. Steve, thank you very much for your participation. Don, I just want to make one comment before I ask Ray to tell me whose hand is raised next. And that is that, oh, by the way, Ray, you do post-production for us. I might as well throw that in there because Don mentioned that word. (laughs) Anyway, the uh, 
New Britain Red Sox back in 1993 or maybe the Paw Sox of 1994, and I remember this clearly, there were five players, I believe, on one of those teams or maybe some were on uh, one and some were on the other. You had uh, Carlos Rodriguez, Tony Rodriguez, Steve Rodriguez, Victor Rodriguez, Frankie Rodriguez. Well, you know what? Uh, it, one was not Carlos. It was Ruben. Uh, Ru- Ruben Rodriguez. He, the others, you had Tony, all, Steve, Victor. Yeah. Victor and, became a hitting coach. Yeah. And Frankie was supposed to be hot stuff. And I think he briefly made the majors. But yes. And then he got traded to the twins for Rick Aguilera. I think he was only a cup of coffee guy in the big leagues. We, we had Scott Hatterberg, who was more than a cup of coffee guy. But even, even with him, we still were. 52 and 88 that year, 93 and 50 and one, only one game better than that. The, the next year It was just brutal. Those last two years with the Red Sox. Mm. Ray, do we have any other hands raised? Not at this time. No. Okay. Uh, Don, uh, you, you mentioned, uh, uh, broadcast for two teams with, uh, two lousy records. Did you ever have a chance to? Broadcast a playoff game? Only or twice. Playoff. Twice we did in 1997 and 1998. The St. Paul Saints went to the playoffs in those two years. And, uh, 97, we won the first half in the Northern League Eastern Division, but we lost in a five game playoff to Duluth. And then Duluth played Winnipeg, although I don't remember who won that one. And then in 98, <clears throat> we um, won this. We, we didn't, we didn't win either half, but we, we had a good enough record to make the playoffs. And we played Thunder Bay, the Thunder Bay Whiskey Jacks. And Who were the St. Paul Saints affiliated with? No one. It was an independent league, the Northern League. But if, if there's a better name in the world than the Thunder Bay Whiskey Jacks, I'd like to know it. And we, we played there. We played the last two games ever played in Thunder Bay games one and two of the playoffs that year. And then the, the Jacks came down and played games three, four and five. And Matt Noakes, who's a name some of you may remember. Catcher for the Detroit Tigers. Right. He hit a home run to walk off for the St. Paul Saints over the Thunder Bay whiskey Jacks. And they, the next year they became the Schaumburg Flyers in Schaumburg, Illinois. So there were no more visits to Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is too bad because you can't have enough visits to Canada if you're in the baseball business. Okay. Uh, next up, we have a couple of people. So we have, uh, Ray Marcus, you're up first. Ray? Good afternoon, everybody. Thank Good you afternoon. for being on the call today, Don. I have two questions. Um, I'm so happy that you mentioned, uh, Scott Hatterberg. I've been an Oakland A's fan for over 50 years, and Scott Hatterberg hit that walk-off home run in 2002 to continue the Oakland A's 20-game winning streak. So I'm glad you mentioned his name. Oh yeah, he was a he, he was a big hit with New Britain. We had a tough park to hit home runs out of, but Scott managed it. Mm-hmm. And my second question for you is, um, I'm not sure if it was with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays or the Tampa Bay Rays, but are you familiar or anybody on the panel familiar that there was a blind color commentator for the Tampa Bay Rays or Devil Rays? There still is. His name is Enrique Olu. He's been a guest on the Baseball Lifer. 
Um, and, and I was very, very pleased he would, would do it because he not only is a broadcaster by night, but by day, he works in the public defender's office. Oh, wow. So he's a translator and, and the, the criminals, he says, they don't know that he's blind until somebody you know, walks him out of the office. If, if, if he just stays sitting down at the office at the desk, he says the criminals don't know he's blind. I don't know how that can be because it's pretty obvious to anybody that I'm blind. <laughs> well, does thank he you do so the, much. does he do the Spanish broadcasts or the American broadcasts? He does the Spanish language and he always has from 1998 when they were still the devil rays until today. And he's getting set for his next season working with them. And when we, joined Charleston, which was a Devil Rays team at that time in 2000, I was in dire shape because a lot of those river dogs for Charleston only spoke Spanish. And I had done some Spanish in high school and college, but it was very rusty. And um, <clears throat> and I didn't have the words to, to interview these guys. And luckily we knew about Enrique. The question was, would Enrique be willing to be a consultant for me and give me enough Spanish to interview the ballplayers? And he was as kind as he could be. And he really helped me in a major way. Uh, I wish I remembered some of the words he taught me back then, but he taught me how to ask, you know, about any injuries the guy might have, he taught me what the word for arm was and leg and knee and elbow and shoulder and all the things that can get injured. And he just gave me other questions to work with. And one Spanish thing, though, I, and I'll make it as quick as I can. My first year, 1991, I went down to Miami from Pompano, and I had noticed that people – Spanish-speaking people in particular were terrified of my seeing eye dog. And I don't know who I asked, but there was somebody, because there was no computers then, like now, you know, you couldn't just ask your computer, how do I say the dog doesn't bite? But I asked somebody, and they told me to say, el perro no muerda, the dog doesn't bite. So I went down to Miami and went, was going to a University of Miami game at Mark Light Stadium. And here I hear a bunch of Spanish speaking people and I say to them, you know, the dog doesn't bite. El perro no muerda. And they still ran away. Um, yeah. Uh, um, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ray. So they didn't we have a couple of people up next. We have Nora and thank you. Uh, uh, um, Ray, his name Ray, is Ray. Ray, too. Ray. Yeah, thank Sorry. you, Ray. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you, Ray, for your questions and such. Um, so Ray, we Ray. have Nora and uh, well, Tony, and then um, uh, Nora. Sorry. Uh, so Tony's next. Tony. All right, Tony. All right, can you guys hear me? Yes. Can now. Okay. Uh, I just have a quick question because uh, if I heard you correctly, you said you've done some boxing matches before, and I'm just wondering. Is there a big difference between working a boxing match and then working a baseball game? Yes, very, very, very much so. Um, when we did boxing, it was strictly on the basement network. It was never for money. It was just into a tape recorder. And somebody would have to do all the 
blow by blow when the fight was actually going on. And since we didn't have any commercials, I could yammer during the full minute in between rounds. And in when we were doing boxing, because I wasn't doing it for making money, I could unleash my inner Howard Cosell. And I'd spend the whole minute doing boxing commentary in Howard Cosell uh, concerning whatever fight we were watching. And then my partner, when the, when the whistle would go, I'd say, and there's 10 seconds before the start of the next round, and here's Jack or or Jeff or whichever partner I had. And I did that one night with Jim Lucas. That was a, I just was wondering what he would do with boxing. Would he be able to, to cover it? And everybody can't. I, I went to one amateur show with a guy who said he would do the play-by-play, and the first like punch of the first round, Somebody got cut up, and this guy fainted from the sight of blood. <laughs> I didn't have a commentator the whole rest of the night. How'd you manage? I didn't. That was the end of the show. Oh, okay. Well, good answer. Thank uh, you, Tony. Thank you, Tony. Uh, Nora. Hello. I'm pleased there to you meet are. you. Hi. Pleased to meet you, John. Uh, oh, thank you. You're welcome. Well, have you ever, what was your, when you were in the very beginning, did you ever wanted to be a broadcaster or announcer or anything when you were much younger? Oh, as far as I can remember, I wanted to be in radio from, from as, 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 as young as I could remember anything. Now, initially I wanted to be a disc jockey because I loved country music, which in New Jersey in 1970, that was, that made me a weirdo. Because I love Johnny Cash and Tom T. Hall. And Nothing wrong with them. Lynn Anderson and a lot of singers that are long forgotten now. But I wanted to be a DJ. But when I yeah. went to college, um, I found out the DJs were almost extinct, like the dinosaurs. And um, Why was that back then? Because automation was the first thing. And even in 1980 80, or whatever year it was. Yeah. Between 83 and 86, when I was in there, you know, automation was coming in and the satellites were over the horizon, but they were very close and there was not much future then in being a disc jockey. And uh, one of my professors said I had a voice for sports and that was something I hadn't talked about at the time. I hadn't started approaching guys about doing sports because I didn't have my license, which was required at that time. But as early as 79, I was hearing college radio. I heard Matt Lachlan, who broadcasts for the Devils. I heard him at Seton Hall. I heard the Washington Nationals, Charlie Slows, and the Yankees, Michael Kay, on Fordham Radio. And when you hear college radio, when you're in high school, you think, I could do this. Because all my life I'd been hearing the best of the best, Bob Murphy, Phil Rizzuto. And I'm like, I'm never going to be as good as they are. But hearing college guys, you know, making mistakes that I could make, you know, I'd say, I can do this. And, you know, when when I finally was able, I started approaching guys at Glassboro and asking if they'd want to work with a blind person doing sports. And Jim was the first one to open the door. And then there were others after that. 
Thank you. And, uh, mm, thank you, Nora. Thanks, Nora. Yeah, come. You too. Bye bye. So, um, before we move on, Don, you're kind of about, uh, you being a country music guy, uh, in New Jersey rang true because I was raised in, in the New York City area and there, there just simply wasn't a country music station anywhere on the Northeast quarter when, when, you know, in the eighties at all. It just didn't exist. You got as, it, brother. As, as, as I remember, it just did, you know, it just was not, there you was know, the, the WHN, WHN sort of was, uh, when they did the Mets. But, you know, they were sort of a, an outlier and they never really caught on. And, uh, I don't know what the situation is now in that part of the country. Mm, uh, it's but, still, it's still pretty grim. Still pretty grim. Well, yeah, it's, uh, anyway, real, I, I just, yeah, the I, real I just country is on YouTube and it's on, you know, these, these special stations that specialize in traditional country. But you went to Princeton and I did some games from old Palmer Stadium in the, in the late 80s, yeah, late 80s through 1990, I did, and that was the only place where I had a touchdown return on a kickoff, and it was the first play of the game, and I must have gone through three first names before I had the right name for the guy who made the run, so it, it was I, like... I, I didn't know Princeton played Glassboro State. Oh, they didn't. This was after oh, I graduated. Right. Okay. It was Princeton against, I think, Cornell when that, yeah, uh, that's, and that's, I, yeah. I would do on the basement network. We did Penn against Princeton. We did Columbia against Princeton. I'd go there with another guide dog user named Greg Ortiz. And we, we had more fun doing those games. We were both, you know, recreating off of what we were hearing off of our radios. And I went to Franklin Field in Philly. That's one I did without him. He didn't want to go. And believe me, when I got there, I saw why. Because to get to the press box, there were eight flights of steps to the press box. And I got over the eight flights, and somebody says to me, hey, are you pencil press? And I'm like, no, I'm radio. And he said, oh, you're in the wrong press box. you got to go across the field and up the eight flights of steps over there. And I'm like, well, how am I going to do that? Well, they loaned me very kindly a very nice young cheerleader to get me up those eight flights of steps. There you go. There you go. Uh, Ray, any other hands raised? Not at this time. Okay. So if hands do get raised, let us know, and we will. Uh, we have about three more minutes, and so and there is still time to get stories, somebody in. The stories I can't tell here or I can't tell on my podcast, they're going to be in my book. It's not done yet. I don't know when. You're writing be. a book, Don. Tell um, us about it. I am. I've been. I started working on it in uh, October of nine, of 2015. You know, I was injured at the time, and I was in a wheelchair, and then gradually worked up to a walker and a cane. And my brother said, well, you should start writing. So I started writing a blog, and then I got the idea, I'm going to write a book about my memories of my growing up years and my baseball years. And really that, quick, we have that, phone number ending in 080. All right, phone number in 080. Hello, what is your name? Karen Gerald. And, uh, oh, Karen, baseball. yes. I was wondering, Don, I know baseball is a game of statistics, so did you gather those statistics, keep them in Braille notebooks, or did you let your partner take care of the statistics, and how would you manage to get them in the pre-computer days when someone would have to find them and dictate them to you? Right. My partner's Jim. 
or his buddy Chuck, one of them would read the stats to me daily into a tape recorder, and then I would braille them, and I would, you know, change. I'd, I'd write new braille stats every day, and then when the computer came in, I got my first one in 1999 after eight years of just being read to all the time. And I could only use it at home. It wasn't a laptop. So out on the road, we still had to get the faxes and somebody would have to read them into a tape recorder or would have to read them and I would braille directly as I was being read to. And by then we had my wife doing a lot of that. So that took some of the heat off of Jim and Chuck. Well, thank you. The important thing is that you did it. You didn't shy away from it just because it was difficult to gather that information. Never. It had to be done. And selling was a lot more difficult than the stats. That's a whole, that's a whole other show, I think. The whole selling concept. Don't you know? Uh, Thank you, Karen. uh, Thank you, Karen. (laughs) We're out of time. Don, it was a fast show. You have a lot to bring to the table and we appreciate you very much. We appreciate the fine work that you've done. Obviously, you are an avid sports fan. We have you on Sports Roundtable all the time as a regular panel member. And thanks for taking the time to come here to win perspective. And good luck with Baseball Lifer. That sounds very exciting, too. Good luck with that, Don. Uh, thank you kindly. I am enjoying the podcast much more than I thought I would. I've had better luck getting guests than I expected. Excellent. Okay. And when your book comes out, let us know because we will oh, you'll, uh, you'll know. get you back on the show. Yeah, I'm sure we will. So I want to look forward to reading it. I want to hear yeah. some of those untold stories. Oh, yeah. They'll all be there. Next week, we have a blind scholarship winner through the American Council of the Blind. Her name is Chantelle Zuzi. We're going to hear a lot about her and all that she's involved with next week on In Perspective. Ray? Peter and our participants, as well as Don, thank you for making this show a very enjoyable one. And go safe with God's abundant blessings, everybody. Have a wonderful evening. 